Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Well, I'm doing really well. I had a great time uh, reviewing these chapters, and I I had a lot of a lot of fun looking at what's going on. Yeah, what you talking about? What's going on in the chapters, or what's going on in uh, in our in our daily lives? Oh, in, in the chapters, my daily life is a. Uh... Well, it is what it is, but it is yeah. what it is. I feel you, man. Well, let's not dwell too much on that. Then let's just uh, briefly uh, talk about what's happening with church right now. I think the biggest piece of news that's been happening in the church is that apparently we got this two phase process of opening church back open. What What are your initial feelings about that, Derek? Well, I think that it's highly dependent on what's going on on the ground. Like in New Zealand, they seem to have everything so gloriously under control, and and like I think that probably could be safe. Here in Massachusetts, it's still really, really a mess. Um, I don't know what it's like exactly in Utah, but I think that's something that they uh, will have to really be done locally based on what are the facts on the ground, also what are the local and state ordinances that cover these things, and so that really has to be decision based on the geography. I'm wondering if part of their calculation gets to be, well, if we go too long without church, people will like it at home and then and then not come back to church. And what does that tell you, Derek? What does that tell you that that might be a legitimate fear that they have or that people might actually do that? What does that tell you? Well, it tells me that we need to do our church better um, if that's going to happen. It also tells me that that this is almost the uh, the parallel of, oh, we got to save the economy. We really should prioritize the value of human life over all other things at this point and then, and then work within the constraints we have. And I think church is a little bit, obviously mm-hmm. meeting together is important, but it's not the same level of importance as our essential workers or other things that have that actually have to be open. We can do church. Like church Correct. isn't the building. Church Correct. is us and we're not closed. The buildings are closed, <laughs> but we're not closed. Yep. That's kind of my reaction. What do you what do you what are your thoughts? Oh, just like you said, man. You basically quoted that uh, Chicago pastor who was just like I know the church is the church is open, but this building is closed. We will not be coming up in here. I am not going to church. I am yeah. not going to church until their stuff is open. And you know who there is. I'm not going to church until all of their stuff is open. Until then, I will be at home waiting on the Holy Spirit of the Lord to warm my feet and spurn me into action. But until then, I'm staying right here. I'm not leaving my house. And I think one of the things to... to f- to watch is what do the leaders do? Like what are the, the quorum of the 12 and the 70? Cause a lot of them are really old and they shouldn't be around people. I think that's uh, something to watch. Yeah. I'm, I'm staying, I'm just staying in the house, but you're, you're totally right. That is a curious case. And I'd be very interested to see how they respond because that's what they do. They go to all these conference, you know, the state conferences, they travel around the world. They do all these other things. They meet a whole bunch of people, and a lot of that can be done online. Do you think we're going to be entering some kind of new normal once this pandemic is over? I think so. Um, I don't know exactly what that will look like, Mm. but I think we will have learned a lot of lessons about different ways of connecting with God and connecting with each other. Mm. 
I concur. I concur. Well, I'm real excited to talk about these uh, chapters. Yeah, let's uh, get right into it. But before we do, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. All kinds of content now available on lyceum.fm. So before we jump into the content of these chapters, something worth mentioning, I suppose, is what's going on exactly. We're at the end of Mosiah, Mosiah and uh, Alma the Elder's lives. Mosiah is basically telling his people how they how he wants them to run things after he's gone. And then we get into some very interesting happenings in the in the Church of Christ when uh, Alma takes over as both the chief judge and the high priest of the church. A lot of interesting things happen. We're introduced to ne- uh, to Nahor as well as Amlicai, some wars, some Antichrist mess. Uh, the different things that happen as a result of pride in the church, of pros- prosperity in the church, all kinds of interesting things that we are going to be seeing. And lots of, I feel like we're saying this every week, but there is a deceptive amount of material in just these few relatively short chapters. Like this isn't, these aren't long chapters, but there's a lot here worth going over. It, did I miss anything, Derek? Yeah, I think you covered it. That's That's great. All right, cool. So um, the last half of Mosiah 29 is probably what stood out to me the strongest in this whole reading because I see so much of what is being described in our country's current leadership. Like what's happening in this chapter is that there is a political reformation of sorts. Mosiah decides that rather than kings, there will be judges to ensure that both leadership is held accountable as well as the people. For their own sins, uh, he he does say that if they could always have righteous kings, then it would be good to have a king. But King Mosiah sees that's not realistic. He cites the dangers, uh, some kinds of hypotheticals of what could happen if they have a wicked king. Uh, they cite the traits of a wicked king, and then again, there, there's just all kinds of things that jump out to me as I read these uh, verses. Let, let let me just read a couple of these verses for you and Derek you let me know Uh what stands out to you what comes to your mind as I read from these verses we're starting in 21 this is Mosiah 21 okay and behold now I say unto you ye cannot dethrone an iniquitous king save it be through much contention and the shedding of blood for behold he has his friends in iniquity and he keepeth his guards about him and he teareth up the laws of those who have reigned in righteousness before him and he trampleth under his feet the commandments of God and he enacted laws and sendeth them forth among his people yea laws after the manner of his own wickedness and whosoever doth not obey doth not obey his laws he causeth to be destroyed and whosoever doth rebel against him he will send his armies against them to war and if he will destroy them and if he can he will destroy them and thus an unrighteous king doth pervert the ways of all righteousness dude are you hearing what i'm hearing yeah it sounds really familiar right doesn't it like i just about i've I mean, I've read through the Book of Mormon more than 
you know, more than once. And, you know, as I've read these verses, like, here's what I did. I went back to my missionary set of scriptures because, like, I'm always curious to see what I've highlighted differently in my missionary scriptures that I had when I was like, I mean, these are like 10 years old, more plus, and then uh, reading what I got highlighted in, you know, my current set of scriptures. And I don't have a lot of consistent highlights, but this one was one of them about the effects of a bad king. That's what I was, that's what I was worried about, the effects of having a bad leader in office. But like, and this is the other thing, Derek, I don't particularly care to talk about 45. Like I've made a concerted effort to not mention his name on the show or to not even talk about him because I don't think it's one, all that fair to blame him for a lot of stuff that's going on in two. I just don't like to. But when he is done, most of what's listed here and we choose not to talk about it because it's uncomfortable, I feel like we do ourselves a great disservice and we also turn the gospel of Jesus Christ into something it's not intended to be because discipleship isn't supposed to be easy. Like, look at what is listed. Friends in iniquity. Most of who surrounds 45 at the White House isn't someone who has clear qualifications for their job they're doing, you know? We still don't know what exactly Betsy DeVos is doing up there. I don't, I, I know what Ivanka's title is. I still don't know what she does, you know? Yeah. Like, it's clear that the majority of the people in there are either not qualified or they're there because like, it's not an unreasonable assumption based on the high turnover that our president's relationship with those who he's appointed and their lack of qualification for the jobs they're doing that 45 is simply looking to have people around him that will fall in line. But that's enough of that. The next phrase teareth up the laws of those who have reigned in righteousness before him bro this one hit me the hardest like yeah comedians joke a bunch about this about the spiteful nature of 45 undoing barack obama's political legacy and i'm sure there's been a think piece or two about it but it's not hyperbole Derek. it's not hyperbole like the man literally campaigned on promises of undoing many of obama's signature works and policies not only that but we're sitting in the middle of one of the constant consequences of that right now our lack of response to the pandemic is a direct result of 45 undoing the work of previous presidents and we know we know this Derek we know that Obama spent no small amount of time explaining the construction of the plan to combat pandemics like the one we're in now he even predicted when it was going to happen almost exactly five years before it did now look at us look at us yeah <laughs> like yeah I know it's ridiculous and the next phrase here he trampleth under his feet the commandments of God. Like, I, mean, I don't feel like that one's too hard to acknowledge. Like, we know the dude lies a bunch. That is a statistically indisputable fact. You can argue that he predicated his campaign on xenophobia, racism, and misogyny, and he, and he definitely has a history of racist behavior. I'm not going to act like I know the man's religious life, but from what I can see, based on how he conducts himself, his his religion is blatant hypocrisy and pretense like that is that is right, just based on right. what i see and then this next thing here he enacted laws and sendeth them forth among his people yea laws after the manner of his own wickedness we've seen this too in his notorious plan to build a wall on the mexican border as well as the several civil and human rights rollbacks affecting the workplace our education system the criminal justice system and a lot more like these are all things that speak to what he predicated his campaign on again racism misogyny xenophobia and a little bit of homophobia in there as well 
And then there's this next phrase, whatsoever, sorry, whosoever doth not obey his laws, he causeth to be destroyed. How many people has this dude fired because they wouldn't play ball or threatened to fire? How many has he fired or threatened to fire because this, because they wouldn't play ball? And this next one, whosoever doth rebel against him, he will send his armies against them to war. Okay, so we haven't been in the wars yet, but there have been times where we almost ended up in wars because someone insulted our president or engaged in policy that he didn't like, like Iran and North Korea to like name the first ones that come to my mind. But Mosiah's point yeah. isn't, Mosiah's point hasn't quite been made yet. That actually comes later in verse 31. And he says, for behold, I say unto you, the sins of many people have been caused by the iniquities of their kings. Therefore, their iniquities are answered upon the heads of their kings. That last part is going to be important for different reasons later on. But uh, I want to concentrate on the first part, that first sentence. I don't know that I'd go as far to say that 45 has caused, you know, a lot of the bad behavior that is happening right now. Cause just makes it feel like we can blame him for all that stuff. And I'm, ve I'm very hesitant to blame him for any of the racial animus that presently exists in our country. But I'm totally fine saying that he's enabled a lot of the strange that we're seeing presently. I'm totally fine doing that. I don't think a president has the power to stamp out or cause racism, but I do believe that the president sets the tone for, for what is and what isn't acceptable. Right. And since his campaign, we've seen a lot of people emboldened by his presence in the White House, not the least of whom are actual white supremacist organizations whose support he refuses to disavow. And that is not insignificant. And uh, anyway, here's the kicker for why I really want to talk about this. It's in 26 and 27. Now, it is not common that the voice of the people desireth anything contrary to that which is right. But it is common for the lesser part of the people to desire that which is not right. Therefore, this shall ye observe and make it your law to do your business by the voice of the people. And if the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come upon you. Yea, then is the time he will visit you with great destruction, even as he has hitherto visited this land. Like we got to, we got to talk about that. Like have, what yeah. does that mean for us? Like ha, ha, have we not chosen iniquity by electing a man such as 45 to our nation's highest office? How is that affecting us? Are we in the middle of our own destruction and is it reversible? It, it is like, what is 45's presence in the white house really an indictment of further? Like, is it an indictment of us? Is it an indictment of our system? Is it, is it something else entirely? Like, I didn't have time to ponder all those questions, but these are just some of the few things that I thought about in the in the midst of reading these verses and consequently being like, what is going on? What are we supposed to do with this information? How is this supposed to inform how we move forward? Well, one of the things I thought to bring out is these threats of destruction and, and punishment. I don't think these are like an artificial add-on that like god decides to you know add something new that wasn't there as a punishment i think what it is is a natural consequence of the iniquity of a moral leader and political leader will lead to these consequences so i don't want to say like oh this right. corona is is somehow a plague right. from god to punish us for trump i think the punishment for trump is exactly the leadership we got 
and that's our punishment is we've got Trump and he's mishandling the, the, everything, including mm. uh, the coronavirus. So that's kind of where I want to go. Another thing that this reminds me of is a lot of Latter-day Saints want to say, oh, we, we've got to, you know, you know, when you talk about social justice or equality or other things, that's all political and it's not religious. And one of the things that people misunderstand is that these things were inseparable uh. in the ancient world. It's only after the Enlightenment, after this idea of pluralism and religious tolerance, that religion became this like private mm. internal devotional thing. Like when I go to my workplace, like all my workers, I don't know what their religion is. It's something that they keep personal and we all go home and do our whatever. But in the ancient world, it was not that way. There was no, there wasn't even a word for religion in the ancient world because it wasn't separate from, uh, from from your way of life as a Roman or as a Greek or as a Jew. There's just everything was entangled about what your obligations are as a citizen of this nation or tribe or people. It was all combined. And um, now there were words for ritual mm. and mm. devotion and piety and other things, but there isn't any equivalent of the word religion as we have in our modern understanding of carving out a separate thing called religion. And that, that speaks to both what you've got in the Book of Mormon and the Bible is your religion actually has public and social consequences. And if if we get, you know, you got to stay out of politics when you advocate for mm -hmm. social justice, that makes no sense in light of our sources. It also makes no sense in light of what Joseph Smith preached. Um, Speak on it. Yes. So that's kind of where I, where I would go. I don't have much to say about Trump because you already oh, said yeah, everything okay. so much more brilliantly than I could. Yeah, I, I doubt that. But you brought up a great point, Derek. I don't know if you want to expand on this much, but I'd be very interested to know how folks address this in Sunday school next week if they choose to. Like the whole like the whole last half of Mosiah 29 wasn't speaking out about something we have a high-profile case study of right now. Like I, I regularly worry that we shortchange ourselves by not having conversations like the one you and I are having right now. Like I, I kind of get yeah. it. I kind of get it. Like you you read our any you read any of our one star reviews on iTunes and all of them are people who seem to not understand what it is that we're doing here or they don't really appreciate it. I don't huh. I don't want to spend Sunday school talking past folks who are incapable of hearing me and thereby produce unnecessary contention. I don't want to do that. But at the same time, many of our deepest institutional maladies as a country and as a church are going to be fixed by having the difficult dialogue about what our faith demands from us in each sphere. And we do ourselves again, a great disservice by ditching these conversations because of discomfort. So we can only talk about right. things that feel good or speculate on uh, or speculate on where the sort of Laban is or split into groups for any of these godforsaken reasons. I really hate splitting up into groups in Sunday school. I don't like it at all, Derek. But beside the point, oh. nothing nothing as complicated as uh, as racism or homophobia or misogyny, none of that is going away by ignoring it. None of that is going away by not talking about it at church just because it's political. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I have a solution. Uh-huh. But one of the reasons I wanted to start this particular show with you, Derek, is to create is to create a space where those conversations could happen for those who wanted to engage them. One of the reasons 
I want to have these conversations at church is because I feel like that's kind of the purpose of our meeting together. Like you said, these things weren't these things weren't separated in the ancient world. We did that much later. We as a church, we go to church because we must reaffirm what it is that we believe and value and how we and how we uh, and how we oh, gosh and how we go about living yeah. into those things in our regular lives. If we're not going to engage our text in a way that really wrestles with what it means for us as individuals and as people, then what else are we doing here once we've taken the sacrament? What are we doing? Like, yeah, I, I do appreciate the autonomy. Like, I appreciate that the brethren are reinforcing this autonomy with the come follow me curriculum. Like, I love it, actually. Um, you know, it's it's like without it. I don't think I don't know that we'd have this show. I don't know that uh, I would be getting as much out of the scriptures as I am currently. So I don't want to knock that. I, I don't believe it's proper. Uh huh. Uh, for the church to be primarily responsible for our education as it pertains to the gospel. But in the world we're living in today, to read Mosiah 29 in Sunday school and not address what's happening in our world would feel like a deliberate choice of uh, comfort over covenant. And I really, really do not like that. Yeah, and that reminds me of so so much of church, at least in the New Testament, is about the hard conversations. Like if you go yeah. through the gospels, Jesus is always saying things that disturb people or make yes. literally make him want to throw him off a cliff or crucify yes. him or whatever. Yes. And then same thing with Paul's letters. Not you know some of them are about comfort like Philippians, but many of them are like wow we've got to have a really hard conversation like First Corinthians, Second mm-hmm. Corinthians, Galatians. Mm-hmm. Those are all like really hard tough things to to hear, um, and we've got to have some of these hard conversations in the church, and yes. that gets back to. The the previous few verses before the ones you quoted are about a living example because Mosiah mentions Noah by name in verse 18. Yea, remember King Noah, his wickedness and his abominations. Like, And then it says, behold, what great destruction did come upon them. Mm-hmm. And also because of their iniquities, they were mm-hmm. brought into bondage. I think having a living memory of King Noah is the whole prompting for all of those verses that you quoted. Yeah, yeah, probably. Mention, you know, the, those verses that you quoted about if it comes a time where the majority of the people choose iniquity, then God will judge you. You know, some Latter-day Saints have used that against marriage equality because they're like, oh, if we as a nation vote for marriage equality then God's going to punish us for for choosing wickedness and that's why we can't have marriage equality and I think that's just a really awful misuse of this text especially because it's in the context of equality mm-hmm. right the whole point is um, structuring your society and there's even religious tolerance here in these in these chapters where yes there is where people were not persecuted for not being part of the church and people were taken care of whether they were part of the church or not I mean that's the whole value that we have in this society mm. but mm. you were going to say something I was just going to say that uh, like I, or just reaffirm that I get the discussion that the discussion of politics can be uncomfortable like I'm I'm uncomfortable you know what I'm saying I'm uncomfortable talking about this this isn't my brand but like the gospel of Jesus Christ for one thing isn't intended to be comfortable all the time like you said this already but I did want to lift that up and affirm that um, I, I feel like I, I feel like if Jesus were on earth today and were to say you know 
actually give commentary on what's happening in our politics today, I feel like a lot of members of the church would straight up stop following him if they haven't already. Yeah, yeah. It would be very similar to that whole, this is a hard thing, who can hear it, you know? Like, that's what I... What was that? Was that at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount? No, this is in what? John chapter 6. John yes, chapter 6, is, so the conclusion of yes, that. Um, this is his discourse um, in Capernaum where he talks about, you know, this is, you know, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood or else you have no life within you. Mm-hmm. And a lot mm-hmm. of these things were just really hard for the people. And that's when they said, whoops, we're not following you anymore. Yes. And when you consider what he like meant when he said those things, I see something very similar or Christ saying something very similar today, like what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood, to follow his teachings and embrace them as they are supposed to be embraced. Like if we did those things, if we were to accept that, you know, we wouldn't be able to deny um, queer folks the rights that they that we believe they're entitled to. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like that would be a hard thing to do. Uh, but sorry, I'm getting away from the point a little bit. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was just my way of saying that the gospel of Christ isn't, isn't intended to be comfortable all the time. But, and the other thing was that politics is by its very definition, the systems by which we care for and love our neighbors. And we act like our faith doesn't inform that. Like a lot of people in a lot of churches, but I know I can say for us in particular, we like to act like our faith doesn't inform our politics, but the fact is that loving our neighbors is basically the whole point of our faith. So when you say that we can't mix our faith and politics, I'm just like, dude, guess what? Your politics kind of is your faith. Whatever you believe your faith to be, that is exactly what your politics is because your politics governs the way that you show love for your neighbors. And that's what our faith is all about, is how we're going to love our neighbors. So when we shy away from having these conversations, we are kind of in a way shying away from opportunities to make ourselves and our neighbors better people and better disciples. And that's just tragic to me, man. That is really tragic to me. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the kingship. We have King Mosiah telling his people in Mosiah 29, verse 5, ye are desirous to have a king. And what I have to say here also speaks to the later desire of the Amlicites to have a king over themselves Mm -hmm. when we get to the book of Alma. But here, Mosiah, in the absence uh, of a king among his own sons, institutes a change in the constitution, and now we have a system of judges. And I'd like to talk a little bit about kingship in ancient Israel. First of all, not just in Israel, but throughout the ancient Near East, kingship was inseparable from the gods. We talked a little bit about this earlier, religion not being a private, completely private affair. And in Egypt, the pharaoh was worshipped as a divine human king. And in Mesopotamia, the king was a divinely ordained authority. And similarly in Israel, a righteous king was a gracious gift established by God. But where many people run into trouble is when we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is when the people of Israel ask God for a king. And a lot of people don't read this in the context of the entire biblical narrative arc around kingship. So people end up using this as a proof text to say that asking the Lord for change is a bad thing. Okay. But we have to look. The book of Judges isn't really a pretty book there's a lot of stuff that goes wrong it didn't work out very well for israel right and there are many places in 
the book of Judges where it says, look, they did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. Mm-hmm. So eventually Israel asked for a king. And I want to say that when you look at it closely, asking for a king in and of itself wasn't wrong. What was wrong was their motivation behind the request. Okay. And what it was is they asked for a king in order to be like the surrounding nations. And that was the wrong. Ah. So, it, so it was the motivation that made their request wrong. Gotcha. And my evidence for this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17, where the Torah actually says and permits Israel to ask for a king. It presupposes that when you get into the land, you're going to ask for a king mm-hmm. and make sure that it is someone who comes from one of your one of your own people, not a foreigner. Make sure that the king doesn't multiply up riches and all of these protections in place to make sure that you have a righteous king. Right. So that's one thing. It is not wrong, according to the Torah, to ask for a king. Mm. And then let's get back to what we see in the royal psalms. We've got Psalms 2, 20, 21, 45, and 110 that really capture this idea of a royal king as a divine gift to Israel and a point of connection with God. And then that also gets back to the whole point of Jesus. All of these things become a foretaste of Jesus as the righteous king, the descendant of King David, the son of David, all these things. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have this if Israel never asked for a king. So it was, Israel was supposed to have a king. Having a king in and of itself, it's kind of like what Mosiah said. If kings are righteous, we would just keep having kings. Right, right. And I think that's really what I'm getting at. And uh, But here's here's the parallel that people make today. Some people make a parallel saying that asking God to end discrimination against LGBTs in the church today and establish equality for us is like the wicked request of the Israelites for a king, that God might give it to us even though it is bad and not good for us. He might just give it to us anyway. Mm. But we should resist this interpretation, remembering that as a loving father, God is eager to have us ask for things. Remember, right. James 4, 2 says, ye have not because ye ask not. Mm. And that brings us to something interesting in Alma 1, verses 7 and 9, connecting it with this idea of initiative. Okay. You know, the Israelites asked for a king. Here we have Gideon celebrated as a hero because of his own initiative. Let's see right. what the text says. And okay. this is in the dispute with Nehor. We've got Gideon responding to Nehor, and here's what it says. It says, the man withstood him, admonishing him with the words of God. Now, the name of the man was Gideon, and it was he who was an instrument in the hands of God in delivering the people of Limhi out of bondage. Yeah. yeah. And I love this idea, because uh, you know me pretty well. I love the scriptures, not as a um, someone who does it because it's what you're supposed to do, but because, <laughs> yeah. but because uh, I just naturally love the scriptures. There's a power there. There's a resonance there. I mean, I can find use the scriptures when people bully me, and it just it completely mm-hmm. serves as a shield. Right. And I love what what Gideon does is he withstands the error with the word of God. Mm-hmm. Now, it also says that Gideon was an instrument in the hands of God, and this brings yeah. us back to yeah. the human initiated the human-initiated deliverance of the people in Mosiah chapter 22. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit last week, 
We did. But, um, we talked about it last wanna, week. We talked about it the week before as well. But I want to bring out something new this time is that it's crucial to note that Gideon wasn't the leader of the people. He was just an average person who noticed something and spoke up. And mm-hmm. rather than waiting for divine intervention or some miracle, his people were saved through a combination of ordinary competence and individual initiative. And the lesson that I learned from this is that one person can make a difference. Even one person on the bottom. Mm -hmm. Grassroots power can make a difference. And this comes clear later in Alma 4. We will get to this where grassroots, the others in this context, make uh, make a difference when the church becomes infested with inequality. You know, we, we've gone through the last couple of come, come Follow Me lessons of, you know, starting with Limhi and his people's deliverance from seeing no divine hand in that work at all, not, nothing that was apparent anyway, to last week's Come Follow Me where we actually see God mentioned in the deliverance of Limhi's people. And now we see exactly how that happened. God spoke to Gideon. And uh, then Gideon spoke uh, to, you know, the leadership. He spoke to he spoke to Limhi. So we're like gradually seeing in retrospect the effect of God's hand in the deliverance of Limhi's people. We don't see it in the moment that it's happening, but we're getting we're gaining more and more clarity about exactly how that's happening as the chronology uh, keeps going. So like right now. We can see that people are trying to do things in the church that are going to allow the tent to be expanded, so to speak. Right. But perhaps yeah. it won't be until many years later when, uh, you know, when people will be able to see the divine hand of God and in, in the work of eventually expanding all blessings to all people. We'll be able to see it in retrospect and we'll be able to see as it was back then, that it was done by regular people with grassroots efforts, that revelation can work from a, from the bottom up. So I, I like how you actually took the time to lift that up and, you know, notice that, of course. Yeah, I, I like how you brought that out. And we who are LGBT, some people say, well, where's your revelation? Like, where's this big grand thing that, and we don't, we actually don't have that right now on a church-wide level. But I think that when we, when later generations of the story get told, people yeah. are going to see God moving through those of us who are LGBT in the church. They're going to see it over this whole 40-year period, right? Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I love how that the narrator does that for us. The first time we get the story, we don't get that it was divine intervention. But then later mm-hmm. when it's retold by the people in the in the context themselves when they reflect on it those characters reflect on it with this idea of well God's hand was there and speaking yeah, to this yeah. grassroots thing it gets back to this idea that we're all uh equal in the church and uh that was part of Nehor's problem is that he engaged in priestcraft where he wanted to exploit people and not just and and he preached not for the purpose of proclaiming the word of God, but he wanted to exploit people and get their money, and that's really the motivation. And this gets back to the whole kingship thing, too, is like, what's okay. the motivation behind it? What is the effect? What are, what are the consequences? And that's really what makes the difference, because some of the same act can be a... You can have the same act in different contexts and have it be a different act, if that makes sense. It sounds like I'm contradicting myself, but I'm really not. <laughs> because the effects are different, right? 
And let's let's get into this priestcraft. We have several warnings against priestcraft here with Nehor, and then later in, in these few chapters in Alma. All right. One of the things I want to talk about, though, is fundamentalism in the church, not the polygamist kind, but the idea that, oh, these scriptures are wooden and black and white, and we have it all here, and you just have to read it, and you don't have to interpret it. You don't have to process it in any way. But the scriptures are marvelously complex and nuanced and diverse. And for every one thing you have over here, you could have something that complements it over somewhere else. And and you'll have a different perspective, something that completes it or balances it in a way. And these prohibitions mm. against priestcraft, I want to balance with something from uh, the Gospel of Luke. So if we go to Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we have something really interesting and I want to really uplift the women here in the text because we rarely get the names of women, but I want to name them right here because here's okay. what happens. It says that, uh, so here's what the context is. Jesus is going around with his disciples, teaching throughout the villages, proclaiming the word of God. And then it names women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, and Herod's, uh, uh, and Cusa was Herod's steward. So we know that Joanna had some access to resources. And then also Susanna. And it says many others in English, but in Greek we look at it and we notice that it is a feminine plural, which you may not notice in English, but it implies that there's many other women. So you've got Mm. these three named women and then many other women who are serving and ministering and providing for the apostles out of their own resources. I think that is so brilliant that these women were able to use their privilege, their economic advantage, and their power, and there was a place for them to contribute to the work of Jesus. Hmm. And and so this gives you a little bit of a counterbalance to the uh, to the prohibition against priestcraft. Here we now see people voluntarily using their work to support those who are were working full time in the gospel and had no other income. And I uh, and this I want to connect a little bit with what Paul said because he engages in in oh and the, and the, like I said the whole thing is about intent and effort uh, and, and the effect. Yeah. Right. If you're engaging in preaching of the word of God in order to get rich, that's wrong. But that's clearly not what Jesus was doing here in Luke chapter 8. And similarly with Paul, Paul engages in this extensive argument in 1 Corinthians 9 where he establishes the right of the apostles when they're engaging in missionary work to receive support from people. Now, Paul, Paul doesn't always take advantage of that, but he says that there's a right to do that, and he defends that. Hmm. And um, I want to connect this with what happens later in uh, verse 26 of Alma chapter 1. Here it says, The priest was not esteeming himself above his hearers, for the preacher was no better than the hearer, neither was the teacher any better than the learner. And thus they were all equal, and they all did labor every man according to his strength. I just love this word equal. There's this equality in the church even taking into account our different callings. Hmm. So there's this, you know, this cultural folklore in the church where people act as though general authorities are somehow higher and right. you know, this royalty right. thing. Right. That the authorities are higher 
or closer to God or more likely to be right or any of these other things, which the scriptures never actually say. Sometimes like in the episode of Cornelius, it's the authorities who are the last to realize the new thing that's going on. And mm-hmm. it's the, the new person, the outsider, Cornelius, who, who gets it first. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, they're not higher or closer. We're all alike unto God. And my view is that authorities in the church are not higher, but they're wider. Mm-hmm. They're not above us but they're, they have a, a wider embrace that the scope of their jurisdiction and stewardship is, is greater horizontally, right? Mm. That make, make a lot of sense? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, even Elder Bruce R. McConkie speaks to this point. In his Mormon Doctrine, first edition, page 284, he says this, and this is really important. He says, Though general authorities are authorities in the sense of having power to administer church affairs, they may or may not be authorities in the sense of doctrinal knowledge, the intricacies of church procedures, or the receipt of the promptings of the Spirit. A call to an administrative position of itself adds little knowledge or power of discernment to an individual. Although every person called to a position in the church does grow in grace, knowledge, and power by magnifying the calling given him. And what I like about this is, you know, he, Elder McConkie wouldn't have named this unless people were already having this folklore problem back then. Right, yeah, right. This, this, uh, this appeared in 1958. And, and that speaks to something... That that's real is that when people are ordained, like if you ordained me to some more some wider office in the church, not higher but wider, if you ordained me, I wouldn't lose all of my biases and my privilege and my own personality. It would be me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for all the good and all the bad that that would be, it would still be me. And I think it's the same thing with our general authorities. They are called into these positions with all of the prejudices, biases, background, you know, assumptions that they've had for the past you know nine decades or however old they are now (laughs) and that's a good thing you know it's um but we have to remember that in context is that uh they're they're no better than us absolutely no better and that's the whole point of what uh what we're seeing in this text in alma okay but that speaks to the importance of having diversity in leadership which we've said before on a number of Mm -hmm. occasions if if we're gonna have people that are called to power, but no more uh, uh, likely to be right, or no more, you know, automatically likely to be right, then we've got to have a diverse system of checks and balances in place and, and make sure that we call a wide um, spectrum of leaders to these offices. Anyway, let's, right. let's take this into chapter, um, Alma chapter four. All right, Alma four. Okay. And this is really similar. It uh, it talks, and I want to bring out two different groups of people here. Okay. The church, and then these others, these mysterious others. And let's just go through Alma chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. And it came to pass in the commencement of the ninth year, Alma saw the wickedness of the church. Now notice this definite article here, pointing out the church as an institution as a whole. And he saw also that the example of the church began to lead those who were unbelievers on from one piece of iniquity to another. 
thus bringing on the destruction of the people. Yea, he saw great inequality among the people, some lifting themselves up with their pride, despising others, turning their backs upon the needy and the naked, and those who were hungry, and those who were athirst, and those who were sick and afflicted. Now this was a great cause for lamentation among the people, while, and here, get this, get this, while others were abasing themselves, succoring those who stood in need of their succor, mm -hmm. such as imparting their substance to the poor and the needy, feeding the hungry and suffering all manner of afflictions for Christ's sake. And, and uh, that proves that they're part of the church, right? For Christ's mm -hmm. sake, who should come according to the spirit of prophecy. Interesting. I notice how that there's a distinction made between the wickedness of the church and the righteousness of these un unnamed mm -hmm. mysterious others who were helping those who needed help. They lowered themselves. They abased themselves. They made themselves available, just like Christ right. did, and for Christ's sake. And there are two crucial facts that are indispensable for understanding this situation and how to okay. apply it to our own context. First, there absolutely was a true prophet leading the church. Right. Right, we've got Alma there. We've, you know, um, we're not in a state of apostasy here. Uh, we've still got the priesthood on the earth. We've still got Alma, a true prophet, having the full authority of from God. Yet, the institutional church is still described as wayward and infested with inequality. Mm -hmm. So that's the first fact. The second fact is that the group of righteous people have no name in the text. They are literally othered. They're on the margins. They're in, you know, they're the grassroots. They're the people who just stood up and did what was right. And I find it so significant that they're not given the name of a person they follow. They're not any ites. They're not any um, the followers of so and so. They're named only by their character. And I think that's so beautiful because it it speaks to the marginality of their position. They just are. Um, and from their marginal position, they do God's work of securing equality. And the credit for their righteousness does not go to the mm. institutional church. Now, let's put these two facts together. Remember, one, they still had a true prophet of God on the earth and full authority over the church. And two, we've got these people who on their own initiative, despite what the church did, did what was what needed to be done and lived out Christ. And if we put these two facts together, we understand that we can't ever sit back and relax and say, well, we're led by a true prophet in these days, so we're all set in the church. Like, everything's all right. Like, right. we must not eclipse that complacency with industry. We need to succor those who are in need of succor. We need to serve hmm. the needs of women, people of color, LGBTQ individuals, disabled people, and also people from other countries. We often s center ourselves too much in America. And we have, you know, obviously we have the right to speak about our context because that's the one we're in. But we should never forget that we've got saints in all these other countries speaking different languages with yeah. different cultures. Yeah. The conversation shouldn't always center around what Americans are doing. Mm-hmm. And what I love about this is Alma's reaction. Alma, 
quits his job as the chief judge in order to fix this mess, <laughs> right? And what that shows me is that our leaders, when they're inspired by God, really care and try to make change. And, you know, our leaders, when, when they have knowledge of these iniquities in the church and all of the inequality that happens even today, when knowledge of this reaches them, they are horrified. Look at what Elder Holland said in his most uh, immediate general conference talk where he... Uh, Wait, was it this conference or the last conference? Yeah, it was this one. It was this one. It was yeah, it was this one. It was because he mentioned uh, Corona. He was like, Mm -hmm. "We need to attack racism with the same Same commitment, same commitment, and same energy with which we attack the coronavirus." And that is completely radical. We should stop. Look at what we're doing with the virus. We're shutting everything down. We're completely changing our mm-hmm. way of life. Mm-hmm. We're completely changing the way things are structured mm-hmm. to get rid of this invisible danger, mm-hmm. this small uh, particle. And we should do that for racism, too. Yeah. Should do we should stop everything, shut everything down, and do everything we can to root out racism and, and then these other sins that Elder Holland mentioned. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, we can be like our hero Gideon in Mosiah chapter 22. We can speak up and share our righteous ideas with the leaders over us. Right. And I think that makes all the difference in the world. I really like the idea of, um, I mean, I'm always going to stand for that Holland talk. It was an incredible one. Uh, but Yeah, like, it is. I, I really just like this idea that uh, we have further evidence in the text of how we should be approaching our, you know, our ministry as disciples of Christ. Like everything that we're saying is further substantiated by the text. It's substantiated by what the authorities themselves said. Just uh, this idea of making sure that we are likened to these others in that we are ministering and doing the work of Christ, regardless of what's happening in the church and regardless of whether or not people know exactly who we are, it's just, uh, I mean, I, I, I just see this kind of motion happening right now and I'm kind of excited about it. But, you know, overall, it's just further validation that, you know, the work of, and I, I, I suppose, becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ in these unconventional ways and these other ways is, uh, is a valid one. So uh, I I just want to lift that up and also agree with what you have said uh, to this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that speaks to the power of likening the scriptures unto yourselves, like reading the scriptures carefully and seeing, like, how does this relate to what we're going on? Because that's probably the biggest power that we have is breaking open the scriptures and and opening them up and saying, like, what, what are the... What are some good questions mm-hmm. we can ask? And uh, this is something that's replicable. Any of our listeners can go in and and ask the so similar questions of the text and apply it right. to themselves and really empower them to be able to withstand all of the negativity that they will get for working for justice in the church and in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much everything I have to say for Alma 4. Awesome, awesome. And I don't think I have anything to add either because you you said it all so well. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap the show up. Uh, But before we wrap up, 
Also want to let you guys know that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network or Lyceum. That's spelled L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. Okay, so by way of housekeeping, Derek, where can folks find us? Well, you can find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I want to invite people to share us with your friends, especially anyone who would have would be moved by this particular episode. Just just send it over to them. Also, make sure you find us on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts and give us a review. Uh, let us know what impact we're doing. Hopefully, you give us a five star review, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and hopefully you can help us make a difference in the world. Thanks. And we got a few. We got a couple extra reviews after uh, after our diet, not dialogue, but Mormons building bridges Sunday school class. I, I don't recognize those usernames, but if I did, I would thank you guys uh, personally. But uh, I got to do it here, so thank you guys who have uh, taken the time to listen to the show and you know go to iTunes and give us that five star review. It really helps us out a ton, and uh, we again we appreciate it also want to extend a quick note of appreciation to uh, those people who have been helping with our transcription and our editing Tamara Kemsley has been coming through clutch by uh, getting the podcast edited and uh, David Doyle has done quite a bit for us in the last little while just staying on top of it within like a day uh, just getting us edits of our transcripts which is super helpful for us in making this ex accessible for as many people as possible so thanks to the two of you who just keep coming through for us did, did i miss anybody or anything else we should before we wrap up no but for those who may not have heard elsewhere maybe they just listened to us here uh, we did do a sunday school class for mormons building bridges you can find it on youtube we covered the book of ruth i think it went really really well we had some good mm -hmm. conversation we did um we mostly framed it, obviously, for the audience in terms of lifting up uh, queer experiences and likening the scriptures unto ourselves from a queer perspective. But a lot of people would benefit from this. Uh, so so go check out that particular class. Uh, I, love, I love the conversation we had. We got a lot of good things covered in that hour. Definitely. Well, if there's nothing else, then... Uh, thank you guys again for listening to us till we meet again next week. Yeah, I look forward to it. See you next week. Bye.